Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hi, Proof listeners. Bridget Lancaster here. And today we've got something a little different. We've collaborated with Business Insiders podcast brought to you by to bring you an episode all about Oreos. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, Bridget. Hey, Charlie. How are you? I'm good. So um, you work at America's Test Kitchen, right? I sure do. And I happen to know you love Oreos. <laughs> but knowing this, I wanted to share with you this Oreo personality test I found. Uh, an Oreo personality test. Don't even know what that means. So there's this retired professor at Virginia Commonwealth University named Randall Sleeth, who created this, I think you could fairly say it's a tongue-in-cheek Oreo test of personality. And it has 10 different categories for the ways that you might eat an Oreo cookie, like the whole thing at once or one bite at a time. I, for example, I'm number seven, twisted apart, eating the inside and then tossing the cookie. Okay. And it says, you are good at business and take risks that pay off. That's good. You take what you want and throw away the rest. <laughs> you are greedy, selfish, mean, and lack feeling for others. You should be ashamed of yourself, but that's okay. You don't care. You got yours. It sounds like you're an Oreo sociopath at this point. <laughs> oh, wait, a, wait a minute, Bridget. <laughs> How do you eat an Oreo? Well, you know, I'm an expert. I don't even bother with regular Oreos. I go straight for the double stuffs because I'm, I already want more than the more regular cream, cream filling. filling. Right. Then I take the cookie, I open it up, and I peel off that, that little fluffy white center. I set one aside, and I give those chocolate wafers to my husband, who particularly loves them. And I eat a double stuffed Oreo, and then I finish it off with a dessert of just the stuff. So you eat one whole cookie. Right. And then you eat just the inside stuff. Correct. So it's like a dessert on a dessert. But what you're telling me is that you eat the cookie and the stuff separately. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of a number seven on the list, an Oreo sociopath just like me. Hey, <laughs> well, I think there's a look of truth in that. But I am going to come to my own defense. And I don't toss the cookie. I donate it to my husband. Oh, you donate it. So, so in the end, you're a giver. <laughs> I am a giver. From Business Insider, this is brought to you by, I'm Charlie Herman. And I'm Bridget Lancaster, host of the podcast Proof from America's Test Kitchen, where we investigate the foods we love and uncover the hidden stories behind them. This episode, we're teaming up to present you the Oreo, the world's favorite cookie. Whether you like double stuff, or mint, or the good old original, you may think you know the Oreo, but when you pull it apart and look closely at those two chocolate wafers and that creamy center, well, you'll find there's a lot more than meets the eye, or the taste buds. So today, we borrow from the cookie itself and present two stories about who made the Oreo look and taste the way it does. And in between, we've got dessert. It's one woman's spiritual journey with the Oreo. Stay with us. Hi, Proof listeners. Now we all know that fried calamari is delicious, but what else can you do with calamari? Today, I'm calling one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues to find out. Hello? Hey, Bridget. Hey, Steve. 
All right, so I've got a question for you. Yeah. What is your favorite way to prepare calamari? I love calamari. In the summer, I like to buy whole tubes of it and stuff and grill them. They're amazing that way. <sighs> but I got to say, I think my favorite way to eat calamari is in the Italian pasta dish, linguine allo scoglio, where the rings are tossed in the pot near the end of cooking so that they just cook through. They are literally the crowning ingredient of that dish. Calamari can be so much more than deep fried rings. For our recipe for linguine allo scoglio and more recipes from the Town Doc, visit towndoc.com ATK. Everyone knows Oreos. The cookies are sold around the world with flavors specific to local tastes, like green tea Oreos in China. Or you have dulce de leche in Argentina. And then there's some really odd ones like apple pie, carrot cake, and hot and spicy cinnamon. Really? <laughs> it's one of the things that makes Oreos so popular. They're so adaptable. But whatever flavor that you prefer or how you like to eat them, the one thing that does not change is the name. Oreo. But what's in a name? Well, in the case of Oreo, possibly the secrets to its origin. And one person who spent a lot of time trying to figure that out is this woman. I'm Stella Parks, and I am senior editor at Serious Eats and author of a cookbook called Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts. What I love about our cookbook is not only are there recipes to make, say, homemade Twinkies or Thin Mints favorites of mine, Stella also digs into the stories behind American desserts, and that includes the Oreo and its name. We don't know the origin of the name Oreo. That's something that Nabisco has been a little bit cagey about. Nabisco is now part of the snack food company Mondelez, but whoever owns Oreo, they're not talking. Oh, and we asked, and did we get an answer? Over the years, there's been a lot of speculation about the name. Like, there's this one idea that the O-R in Oreo comes from the French word for gold, oh, because supposedly the original packaging was yellow or gold. And there's another idea that the first three letters, O-R-E, come from the medical term orexigenic, which means anything that will stimulate the appetite. Like, say, cannabis. Cannabis? <laughs> Wouldn't cannabis make you want to eat a bunch of Oreos? Yeah, that might be the perfect example of a culinary feedback loop. <laughs> and then there's a third theory, that the word Oreo is a pictogram, that the O represents the chocolate wafers, and the R-E is for the cream filling in between. They all feel like a stretch, but Stella believes that she's discovered the true origins of the name Oreo. And not only does it sound logical... It makes sense, because it's connected to a rivalry that existed between the makers of the Oreo and another cookie that looked exactly like it, the Hydrox. Around the time Nabisco first started selling the Oreo in 1912, it was also selling a bunch of other cookies. They kind of have all of these like vaguely botanical-themed names. Like they had a cookie called Avena, which is Latin for oats. And they had another cookie called Lotus, which is obviously like a lotus blossom. And they had a cookie called Zephyret. And there's a kind of lily called Zephyranthes. You get the idea. Meanwhile, embossed on the Hydrox cookie, Oreo's competition, was a very elaborate pattern. It has a laurel wreath design in the very center. It's like a, the crown around the word Hydrox. It's really detailed. Like, you could see leaves and flowers. So you have the Hydrox, which features a laurel wreath. You have the Oreo that looks like the Hydrox. And then you have someone at Oreo who happens to love botanical names. And guess what? There is a 
laurel plant called Oreodaphne, and that's the mountain laurel. So given that there is a laurel crown depicted on the hydrox, and given that there is a laurel plant called Oreodaphne, and it's specifically O-R-E-O, how it's spelled, and then Daphne after that, that's where I think it comes from. But this is just speculation on my part. It's also worth noting that the man in charge of Nabisco, when the Oreo first came out, was a huge fan of the classics and classical languages. His name was Adolphus Green. And he often suggested names for Nabisco cookies based on Greek words. Stella says the folks at Oreo have neither confirmed nor denied her theory. But Bridget, I think it's a pretty good one. Yeah, I do too. Because the truth is, the Oreo is a knockoff. It's a copy. Dare I say it, it's an imposter, a charlatan. It's not just that it might have taken its name from the Hydrox cookie. It's pretty clear that it also copied the cookie's look and flavor. Because the Hydrox was the first cookie sandwich made up of two chocolate-flavored wafers and a creamy filling. In fact, it had been around for several years by the time the first Oreo appeared. Charlie, I, I gotta tell you, I always thought that it was the other way around. Oh, totally. I thought the same thing. I thought Hydrox was the store brand generic version of Oreo. And I can tell you, when that first Oreo came out, the folks who made the Hydrox cookie, they were pissed. Hydrox had all of these ads that were really focused on, like, we are the original and best. And they seemed to, like, really get stuck on this note of just trying to, like, remind everyone that they were the original. This cookie war goes all the way back to the 1890s, years before the Hydrox or the Oreo were on the scene. This was an era when industrial baking companies were coming about that were focused more on providing things like dainty goods, these fancy cookies and crackers that were a step above what you would make at home and a step above what people had been buying commercially. We're talking vanilla wafers, animal crackers, Fig Newtons. Now, there were two brothers, Jacob Luce and his older brother, Joseph, who ran a bakery in Kansas City, Missouri. Jacob was a really good businessman, and soon the bakery was thriving. But Jacob realized that if he wanted to keep growing, he'd have to merge with other bakeries in the Midwest. In 1890, Jacob hired this successful attorney, Adolphus Green. Remember the guy who loved the classics? Well, together they created the American Biscuit and Manufacturing Company, which became the second largest bakery in the country. Jacob became president, and his older brother Joseph got a seat on the board. And Adolphus became the general counsel. There were two other major bakeries in America at this time, and eventually a price war broke out among them. It was called the Biscuit War. All these different bakeries across America were just, like, duking it out to, like, get their market share and to get a controlling interest of the marketplace and consumer interest. And they were raced to the bottom in terms of, like, prices. And after seven years, the Biscuit War, it seemed like maybe it was a bit too much for Jacob. So then Jacob Luce kind of experienced some health problems. And I actually recently came into some information that he was convalescing in Europe and that he had to kind of like step down uh, his role with the American Biscuit Company. So his older brother, Joseph, took over. Joseph thought the Biscuit War was bad for business, and he believed the best way to end it was for the three bakeries to join together and get even bigger. So just like his brother had done years earlier, Joseph turned to Adolphus Green. Together, they took the American Biscuit Company and merged with its two competitors and created the National Biscuit Company, what would later become Nabisco. 
Now, with more than 100 bakeries around the country, it could make and sell the same cookies everywhere in America. It was the start of the mass market for cookies. Adolphus became the chairman of the board of the National Biscuit Company, but really, he ran it. And there was poor old Jacob, convalescing in Europe or wherever, watching his company get swallowed up by its competitors. And he was like, no, don't do it. Jacob just violently disagreed with that and wrote letters from his sickbed and begged his brother not to do it and was just bitterly opposed to this merger of his company of American Biscuit into these other companies. Jacob was going against the tide in American business at the end of the 19th century. This was the age of monopolies and trusts like Standard Oil and the Sugar Trust and the Tobacco Trust. Leaders of these monopolies knew the bigger they got, the bigger their profits. Jacob eventually recovered, and right away, he wanted back in the game. Maybe he even wanted to get back at his older brother Joseph and Adolphus. A few years later, Jacob had a new business partner, and they started a new bakery called the Loose Wiles Biscuit Company. He takes all of this experience and wisdom and industry connections, I'm sure, and applies this in opening Loose Wiles, and just hustles. And after 10 years of from opening this company, and that's 10 years that Nabisco has had to continue to consolidate its own power, Loose Wiles was the second largest corporate bakery in America. A distant second, but still impressive. And Jacob and Loose Wiles had this winning cookie, one that people just loved, the Hydrox. Now, over at Nabisco, Adolphus saw his old business partner turned rival doing really well, in large part thanks to the Hydrox. And then, lo and behold, Nabisco came out with the Oreo. I don't have anything that would suggest any kind of personal vendetta or personal grudge, only the kind of natural assumption that you have two separate companies founded by people who were closely related in a previous business venture, now competing on a national level with identical cookies. Like, infer what you will from that. Oh, let's infer. If any of this was annoying Jacob, what likely consoled him was knowing that his Hydrox was the king of biscuits. Because in the beginning, Oreo didn't sell well. Nabisco was selling it kind of at a loss. And so because it was cheaper than Hydrox, it kind of gave it this like generic quality that it wasn't as expensive, it wasn't as nice. For a while, that's where things stood between Jacob and Adolphus. Jacob had the better selling chocolate vanilla sandwich cookie and Adolphus had the bigger company. Even after they both passed away, this competition between them continued on in their cookies. Eventually, Oreo won. And one reason, well, again, it goes back to the name, this time, Hydrox. The name Hydrox had been intended to inspire like this concept of like freshness or cleanness because it was hydrogen and oxygen and like just pure science or something. And then all these other companies were like, getting in out of that Hydrox train for other hydrogen and oxygen products, including like hydrogen peroxide. So the name Hydrox wasn't helping the cookie. On top of that, Nabisco was just way better at marketing. In the 1950s, the company did a total makeover of the Oreo and launched a campaign promoting new Oreos. It also raised the price, and now Oreos were more expensive than Hydrox. And Hydrox, which was now cheaper and had that generic-sounding chemical-like name, 
it began to look like the knockoff. So Oreos just kept getting more and more popular. Oh, 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 who's that kid with the Oreo And the company began to license it in all kinds of products. You had cookies and cream or Oreo waffle cones. I myself am partial to an Oreo blizzard. And cool off with a mint Oreo blizzard treat. Today, Oreo is the most popular cookie in the world. And what of poor old Hydrox? It was a slow, steady decline as Oreo rose to the top. Decades after Jacob started Loose Wiles Bakery, the company was sold, and then sold again, and then sold again. The Hydrox just faded away. It's now owned by Elia Kassoff, who's trying to bring the old cookie back. And it's got a lot of fans, but it has a long way to go if it wants to catch Oreo. It used to be that you'd place a crown of laurels on the heads of Olympic victors. Today, that crown of laurels, originally on Hydrox cookies, belongs to Oreo. After the break, one little girl puts everything on the line to taste the difference between the Hydrox and the Oreo. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello. Hey, Chad, it's Bridget. Hey, I need you to finish the sentence for me, okay? Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Oh, man. Hmm. I don't know. Butter? The bread? Oh, kitchen. Kitchen sink. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Because they know that in the kitchen, the sink is where clean begins. Take the Artifacts Touchless Kitchen Faucet. It has a precision sensor built right into the spout, so a simple wave of your hand turns the faucet on and off in 20 milliseconds. Kohler offers a range of kitchen and bath products that make cleaning easy. And clean is a good feeling. Learn more at Kohler's collection of clean products at kohler.com clean. When Miyoko Shinner first became vegan, she started by veganizing every recipe in Julia Child's landmark cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And I had to figure out how do I capture those flavors, those rich, unctuous, hearty, deep flavors with the umami bombs, you know, they just last in your mouth forever. And how can I replicate that from plants? And I really made it my life's work to try to do that. Miyoko learned that a good vegan butter needed to function like butter. And the secret to that is that we actually make it like real butter. The cultured vegan butter from Miyoko's Creamery is made using cashew milk and coconut oil, and it's churned just like traditional dairy butter, and it tastes like butter. We're not looking for just pure functionality. We're looking for functionality with something that elevates taste. Learn more at Miyoko's.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S.com. For 30 years, OXO has been creating better kitchen tools. In the cycle testing lab, engineers work endlessly to make sure those tools last. Like OXO product engineer Noah Panilovich. I take it deeply personally. We want to make things that last you forever if we can. I think people oftentimes don't understand how much we put into it to make sure it lasts that long and what we've done to it. So, yeah, it's a very personal endeavor, cycle testing. Take your kitchen tools personally, too. Shop all products at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Hi, Proof listeners. 
I want to tell you about Nova Now, a new bi-weekly podcast from the PBS series Nova that's diving into the science behind the headlines. Join journalist and physician Alok Patel as he talks with the scientists, engineers, technologists, and mathematicians that are working to better understand our world. Now it's more critical than ever to distinguish fact from fiction and find science-based answers to the most pressing questions of our time. So listen to Nova Now today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. Every once in a while here on Brought to You By, we like to share stories about brands that have shaped your lives in a segment we call Product Misplacement. Today's story is about what else? Oreos. And it comes to us from Marjorie Engel, who's a writer in New York City. These days, she has a real soft spot for Trader Joe's Peppermint Jojos. And Oreos are a regular part of her family snack rotation. But back when Marjorie was growing up in the 1970s, Oreos were a forbidden fruit until she decided to take a life-changing risk. I grew up in a very Jewish home, so keeping kosher, uh, kashrut, was very, very important to my mom. Keeping kosher is one of those things in the Bible, in the Torah, that is, because I said so, that's why, from God. There's some things that are spelled out super clearly, and there are some things that are extrapolated from, but... The Torah is very clear on the no pigs thing. No pigs. Anything that you eat that is a mammal has to have a split hoof and chew its cud. Pigs, not so much. Oreos at the time were made with lard, which is pig, which is a no-go. So we were allowed to have hydrox, which were not made with lard. And our mothers always told us, this is just as good, which meant we knew absolutely that it was not just as good. I was going to Orthodox day school at the time, so it wasn't like I was exposed to Oreos in school. We weren't allowed to have them. But I just knew, maybe from, there was the, the, the commercial at the time was, do you know exactly how to eat an Oreo? Whatever. They were the ones that were marketed. They must have been better. There's a kid in the middle of an Oreo To me, it symbolized the wider world beyond my little childhood world. And it was the first time I really thought about breaking, you know, of course I was a kid, I broke rules, but this was the first time I thought about breaking like a real, like God rule. It wasn't exactly like shooting heroin, but it sort of had a little bit of that feeling to it. Um, But it was just... It felt like exactly the right kind of rebellion for me as a little kid. So when I was seven, eight, or nine, I made the decision to go to a very sweet little corner malt shop sort of situation. (laughs) That makes me sound like I grew up in the 50s. But I had scoped it out, and I knew you could get Oreos there. So I, I, I paid for the Oreos. I did not steal the Oreos. But it didn't occur to me until afterwards that I had no way of, you know, I needed to hide the Oreos to get them home. So I put them in my sock, like, um, like, Rosa Klebb in the James Bond movies with like a a knife stuck in her shoe. That was what it felt like. Um, And I went home and 
I went into the garden shed in our backyard because if I were in the house and God struck it with lightning, he would take out the family. And this was this was a me thing. This was my thing. So just get the shed, God. And that was where I tried my first Oreo was in the dark next to the garden tools. You know, I do remember the feeling of finality of opening that crinkly package. And I really did think that when I put that thing in my mouth that there would be a lightning strike. I really, not in any kind of ironic sort of cutesy way, I thought that I could die. And was still willing to die. (laughs) So um, in the face of death, I opened the package and I put the Oreo in my mouth and I chewed and nothing happened. And, you know, I was able to focus on the taste of it. And it definitely had a sort of smokier flavor than a Hydrox, which was just this pure sweet note. And um, the cream in an Oreo was grainier, which I do remember thinking, maybe this is little pieces of pig, Um, but it definitely had more texture to it. I did think it tasted better than a Hydrox. You know, I thought that the odds were good that God would get me on that first bite. Like, damn, you're going to learn something right now. But then he didn't. At the time, God was still definitely a he to me. Um, And then I was like, you know, I know this God from Genesis. And he is manipulative. And there are many moral lessons that are terrifying that he wishes to teach his people. So... It could be that God will strike me down later. And then I was worried about going back into the house because what if he did it then? So I had this first moment of relief, like, ooh, not dead. And then it was like, oh no, dead could happen later because God is so terrifying and vindictive and unpredictable. So I remember being anxious for a couple of days. And then I figured, you know what? The time between punishment and sin is too great now and I think he's not gonna do it. Choosing to eat that Oreo was the first time I consciously broke one of what I saw as God's laws. I'd lost my temper in the moment. I'd done things impulsively, but buying and eating the Oreo was not an impulsive act. It was a choice to be bad. And um, one, making that choice, and two, not being punished for that choice was pretty earth-shaking for a little kid. I think all too much history and tradition is handed down and we are told not to question because there are giant authority strictures in place to make you not question. Um, And you may choose to keep kosher. And indeed, as an adult, I still wrestle with what keeping kosher means and what Jewishness means to me. For me, this Oreo was a liminal moment, but I also respect people who have made different choices. I think it's good when, you know, people have incredibly diverse responses to their faith, whatever their faith is, or don't, as long as they don't judge the way other people go around living their lives. 
all of this. You know, I think you could trace this back to my struggle with Oreo, you know? It's it's questioning, you know, what you grew up with and how you think the world should be. Marjorie Ingle is the author of Mamala Knows Best. You can read her essay about Oreos, Unholy Wafers, in Tablet Magazine. There's a link in our episode description. When we come back, looking for Mr. Oreo. When we started working on this episode, I came across a man named Sam Porcello. Apparently, he's really important to Oreo history. He's credited with inventing the modern Oreo cream filling. He even managed to score the nickname Mr. Oreo. We wanted to do a profile of Mr. Oreo, so we assigned the story to the managing producer of Proof, Sarah Joyner. And what she came back with, it was like a Scooby-Doo mystery. It was so much more interesting than we had ever expected. and. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Bridget. Hi, Charlie. (laughs) Hey. Hey, Sarah. Okay, so the assignment was profile this Mr. Oreo guy, Sam Porcello. Seems simple enough. I started by basically reading everything I could find about this guy, Sam. You know, he has a little section on the Oreo Wikipedia page, and he was written about in Time Magazine, and there is even a children's book written about him. And when he's written about, the narrative about his life is pretty consistent. He was colorblind. He was one of the world's foremost cocoa experts. He worked at Nabisco in the 80s, where he invented the current Oreo cream filling, got the nickname Mr. Oreo, and then he passed away in 2012. Nothing too out of the ordinary. But there was one detail that kept tripping me up that made no sense at all. He retired in 1993. And why would that matter? Well, because the Oreo cream filling has changed twice really publicly since 1993. Once in 97 when they made the cream filling kosher, and again in 2006 when they made the cream filling trans fat free. So this guy who retired from Nabisco in 1993 cannot have possibly been the inventor of the modern Oreo cream filling. Or at least not the sole inventor. But that is the exact story that's everywhere. It is everywhere. A children's book is written about the guy. So I reached out to Mondelez, which is now the parent company of Oreo, and they said outright it would be inaccurate to say that Sam Porcello invented the modern Oreo cream. Also, a former Oreo rep I was exchanging emails with said she hadn't even heard of Sam Porcello. Never heard of Sam Porcello? Mr. Oreo? Dun-dun-dun. Exactly. Dun-dun-dun. The creamy plot thickens. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly. That was horrible. I will forgive you and we can move on. <laughs> we can move on. <laughs> it was better than what I was going to say. Okay, so so how did it happen? <laughs> how did this happen is the question of the century. You've got this guy getting credit for something that it's physically impossible for him to have invented and very legitimate journalists recycling the story again and again with this very obvious glaring issue, and yet it's everywhere. And also, this is Oreo we're talking about. It's not a small-time cookie. It's the most popular cookie in the world. So yeah, how did this happen? 
Yeah, this is a mystery for the ages. But I think I figured it out. It's pretty easy to trace the internet cookie crumbs of Sam Porcello's story back to its source, which is his own obituary. Hey, we've got a clue. Yeah, so let's talk working theories real quick. Either one, Sam Porcello exaggerated his own invention, gave himself the nickname Mr. Oreo, and then a bunch of lazy journalists recycled it without fact-checking. Or number two, what if his family sort of played up this big grand story after he passed away to, like, immortalize their loved one? Either way, I knew that I needed to talk to Sam Porcello's family at some point. And I actually knew that he had this son named Curtis because he'd been quoted in some of the articles about Sam. But I decided really early on that I wanted to get a solid handle on all of the facts before I called the family. So I looked up Sam Porcello's patents. There are four relating to improving the Oreo cream. Apparently, you know, before this point, the cream filling was a little bit gritty and they wanted to make it smoother and creamier. As someone who really enjoys food science, these patents are really cool. There are like all these charts and explanations and really interesting science on exactly what makes the Oreo creamy and delicious. And Sam's biggest contribution has to do with something called the getaway. Sounds like a Steve McQueen movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a Rick Astley song that uh, got rejected on the B side of Never Gonna Give You Up. (laughs) Never Gonna Give You Up. You two need to be stopped. Okay, the getaway. Basically, it has to do with the temperature range at which something melts and when it's solid. So if you're working on an Oreo cream filling, you want it to be solid until you're actually eating it. And then at 98 degrees, you want it to melt in your mouth. Well, it sounds like San Priscillo is legit. Yeah. But when you really look at the fine print on the patents, you realize that Sam's big contribution in nailing the getaway has to do with the hydrogenation of the oils. And later on, when the recipe changed in 2006 to remove trans fats, that means they removed all hydrogenated oils. So translation is the very thing that he got a patent for is no longer a key component of the Oreo cookie that we eat today. Yeah, they had to significantly re-engineer the filling. The other big problem I see with the patent is that on every single one of these patents, there's like co-patent holders. This is from an audio diary I kept while reporting. Of course you kept an audio diary. Of course you did. (laughs) I know, very like me. Anyways, there were like three other names on Sam's patents. James M. Manns of Glenwood, New Jersey. Kenneth W. And I'm like, who are these guys and where's their credit? He didn't really talk much about work, but uh, those patents are, yeah, they're hanging in my parents' house. This is Pam Manns. Her dad, Jim Manns, was one of the men on Sam Porcello's patent. But he didn't want to talk to me. Son of a biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no kidding. But he did send me a text. He told me he worked on the Oreo cream filling for a couple of decades. Sam Porcello was actually his boss for several years. And Jim said they became good friends. I always said my dad was one of the unsung heroes. So it's cool that he could get some publicity. Jim wasn't the only one who wouldn't speak to me. 
I couldn't get anybody involved in the Mr. Oreo story to go on the record. No writers, journalists, publishers, nobody at Mondelez would give me a proper interview. But then I found Miranda Miller. But I did not know Sam Porcello, and I can't believe that he was the one who originated the cream filling. Miranda is one of the scientists that was working on replacing trans fats in Oreos in 2006. And let me be clear, her technology didn't make it into the Oreos. But she told me about a man named Larry Kleeman. Apparently, he was the real hero of the trans fat-free cream. He was the guru. He was the guru of fats. But that, that's just what I call him. But, you know, everybody recognized him as Mr. Lippitt. She named some others, too, who were really important. Alice Heth and Jim Manns. But here's the thing. Miranda made it really clear to me that... There is no I in team. There are many hands constantly working on these products. R&D teams, engineers, flavorists, the list goes on. And the products change all the time. But there's a creeping incrementalism that occurs over time, where over time you kind of get away from the original product. And if you go back to the original formula, sometimes it, it barely resembles it. But then over the years, there have been hundreds of people who have improved it. It became instantly clear to me that there wasn't one person missing out on credit because of the Mr. Oreo story. There were dozens. So I decided it was finally time to get in touch with Sam Porcello's son, Curtis. And so the day comes and I call him. Hello, can you hear me? And I start the conversation by nervously rambling. You know, we were looking at a bunch of different angles at first because, you know, Oreo has... And, like, talking and talking and talking. This whole thing about them making it kosher in 98. And instead of just questioning him about what went wrong and, and who started saying things that weren't exactly true, I decided that the better approach would be to just nonchalantly say it. A little bit confused because I knew that, like, the the recipe had changed after his retirement and like just seemed like this like character just got like so big and he became the face of the cream filling and i and i just how did he react it was almost like he didn't even register what i said i mean i don't know how technical i can get for you but we can <laughs> i can share with you what i know he starts so, talking about sam's know. life and he starts giving me the exact same plot points that i've read time and time again he was uh, one of the world's leading cocoa experts He was known at Nabisco as Mr. Oreo. And it's clear to me that Curtis is really, really proud of his dad. I think me going away to college was difficult for him. So he'd show up at school and he'd open the trunk and it would just be full of cookies and crackers. As we're talking about Sam Porcello's time at Nabisco and Curtis is telling me all of the things that his dad did, he very casually mentions... Yeah, what my dad did with the filling, like, I think it's the biggest change that's been done to the Oreo is, like, since he worked on it. And so I just get—it just hits me in that moment, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, Curtis doesn't know about kosher in 1997. He doesn't know about removing trans fats in 2006. The reason he's telling everybody that Sam Porcello invented the modern cream filling is because he thinks he did. I do not think— that Curtis is even aware of the game of telephone that he inadvertently started. And no one else came to him with questions about that. I'm just thinking, were we the first people to really start to question this story? 
I mean, this is the thing. This is the crux of it. How could a story that wasn't true necessarily be the story that took hold and no one stepped in to stop it? I got so obsessed with trying to solve the mystery that I actually missed a very, very obvious answer. At the point that Sam left Oreo, for his family, Oreo history stopped there, and they didn't keep up on all of the developments on the Oreo after that point. And it actually makes perfect sense that when he passed and they're writing an obituary memorializing the life of their loved one, that they would include some of his biggest accomplishments. And so, What happened is journalists took that and recycled it and recycled it really without very much rigor and fact-checking because... We like the story. We like the story. We want the character. We want the hero. We want the mascot. We want to know there's a Mr. Oreo, that there's someone out there who's making the cream filling that we love. But that's not the truth, is it? Like, Sam... Porcello will always be Mr. Oreo to Curtis, and Jim Manns might be Mr. Oreo to Pam, but there is no Mr. Oreo. And when we oversimplify the Mr. Oreo story, we are cheating the world out of all of the other people who made this cultural artifact. There's beauty in their stories, too, and there's beauty in the teamwork. Bridget, this has been great getting to know Oreos better with you and getting to know what an Oreo fan you are. I have enjoyed every moment, and I still have one cookie left. So thanks Uh, again, Charlie. That's one cookie more than I have. I'm not sure. (laughs) Thanks to our friends at Business Insiders brought to you by Charlie Herman, Sarah Wyman, and Julia Press. Michaela Bly edited this episode, sound design by Bill Moss and Matt Boynton. And thank you to Marjorie Engel for her story about Oreos. We have a link to her essay in our episode description. If you want to learn more about the story, you can visit our website. That's americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. And if you like proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Hi, Proof listeners. I'm El Simone Scott, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast from America's Test Kitchen. It's called The Walk-In, as in the walk-in refrigerator in a restaurant. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, then like me, you've probably had some of your best cries in the walk-in. It's a safe space a place to catch your breath or let it all out. And that's exactly what we'll do on my show. We'll hold space for the food world to get real about the tough stuff in this industry. The show features raw, unfiltered conversations with chefs, writers, and visionaries changing the food game. Like my conversation with Mashama Bailey about what it's like to run a fine dining restaurant in a building that used to be a segregated bus station. Or my conversation with Omar Tate about how he expresses the Black experience on a plate. I hope you'll check it out. Subscribe to The Walk-In today, anywhere you get your podcasts.